So I'm going to begin the talk today and continue quite unapologetically with what Evans and Cooper talking about fat activism in the critical medical humanities describe as the importance of situating one's own lived and embodied biography in research and knowledge production. So here I am on the right of the image in my cloaked neck to ankle academic gown covering my body with this hat on my head, uh, a symbol of knowledge, um, the intelligence of one's head um, and brain. And on the other side is myself in my other very part-time job as a yoga teacher. My feet are bare, my shape uncovered, my physical self arguably foregrounded in the picture. And a friend recently said to me, you know, it's funny you do one job as an academic researcher, which is all in your mind, and you do another, which is all body. But it's exactly that that I wish to contest today. And PowerPoint um, does something useful, provides, I guess, a place for the eyes to focus. But as I'm speaking today about embodiment and knowing bodies, there will also be my whole body and possibly yours in this seminar today too. So my self-conception had always been one of words. Becoming a thinking woman was my way of leaving my working class northeastern roots behind me. As a child, I was never one to think with my physical body. I struggled to throw and catch, to follow dance choreography, to be good at any kind of sport. I got laughed at for being inadequate, having butter fingers. And my body reacted to other bodies who seemed stronger, faster, more adept than I. And I had, borrowing from feminist writer Iris Marion Young, thrown like a girl and felt I could no longer, as young rights, trust my body to carry it towards its aims. I was actually very happy to live in my head. I studied hard, I achieved, and I set high expectations for success. I travelled the whole of the UK looking at faraway universities. No one in my family had managed such a daring escape. Then it all went wrong. I turned 18 and my changing form, shape and weight made me become interested in my body as a site of identity in a very different way, by its mirror image, in which I could only see the fat of my thighs and the curve of my hips and by the bounded line between myself and the world, which I sought to close off and firm up. I catapulted quickly from a rule-bound diet, which my disciplined and determined personality did with some ease, into anorexia. In the treatments with psychiatrists, <clears throat> they sat on chairs. They twirled and crossed their legs and wrote notes. And I sat there, reluctant, hunched over. Questions were asked, but they got stuck in my throat. The words seemed such an ill fit to the feeling. My physical self was screaming, rumbling, shivering, shaking, uncomfortably bony, hard and exposed. Then they took it to the scales and they weighed it. They stuck needles into my arms and drew out bloods. And then they returned me to the talking place, the chair. And there, the bodily feeling, the sensate, the sensational, the ugly unruliness of my body, or perhaps hmm, the hyperconformity of it to mind over matter morality, was largely ignored. 
They said I was irrational and illogical, and the disorder was a trouble of my mind, or my brain perhaps. Something perhaps to do with family psychology, something strengthened by social pressures, but essentially to do with me and my inside thoughts. I had a mental illness. I could be sectioned any day under the Mental Health Act. But we had to attend to the physical first because the body was failing. The recovery over one intense year therefore focused on bodily objectification and quantification. I calculated calories to make me regain enough weight to escape what I saw as a painful interference in my self-control. Everyone was interested in the weight of the body and were happy when it got to a certain normative BMI. When it came to the chair and the mental part, my psychiatrist seemed pleased if I told a satisfactory narrative of recovery head down. I swallowed up other texts written by anorexics to try and make sense of this swooping force that just suddenly come into my life. Anorexia was a voice. It was narrative streams in my head. It was a brain on overdrive. I felt like Samuel Beckett's disembodied mouth from not I floating in darkness. I was at home recovering when I applied to read English at Cambridge University and was offered a place. The move entirely into words and texts was apt. The thinking woman was victorious. I began to practice yoga as one form of exercise during my continued recovery at Cambridge. I made it a mission to overcome my body. This was objectified movement, head down movement, punishing movement. Like activist and author Eve Ensler writes of her bodily self-conception prior to being diagnosed with cancer, I was entirely a floating head and I was healing through this form of conquering. I latched onto feminist women's body image discourse, which said that you're not your body, you are more than just a mere body. I saw that I'd fallen into some sort of patriarchal trap. I cast my body aside. I returned to words as my art, my medicine, my identity. I wrote in my book, A Shape of My Own, which was retitled Thin in paperback, that in my story lies my survival. My words were on TV and radio and in the newspapers. I stood at lecterns and presented. I came here to Oxford to the Literary Festival as one of Penguin's new young writers. I was proud of this acknowledgement of my thinking woman's status. I wanted to talk words and writing, but people wanted to know about my body and if my curious anorexic past was in any way present. People stared at me. Did my thin body signal health or illness? I felt now defined by my body in ways that I never meant to be. I'd meant to be escaping it. Then I got married and pregnant and I birthed two lovely baby girls in three years and I was, as young writes, aware of my body, possibly for the first time, aware of myself as a body, in both trunk and head. There was such a sweet freedom in feeling myself in my stomach and breasts and everything was bodily. But mothering was physical in ways I had never been before. I was now not studying and writing and thinking. I was cleaning, mending, tending, washing, cooking, nurturing, lifting, pushing. I was scared I was going backwards to the place before I had escaped. 
to the roots where mothers and grandmothers had been carers and all body in subjugated and entrapping ways. I learned that I had been the author of an illness narrative, which were being read and studied by academics in the emerging discipline of the medical humanities. I decided to take a master's degree in medical humanities in the first year of a new course at King's College London. We focused on how narrative helped to reclaim the patient voice against biomedical dominance, mastering the chaos of illness, as Anne Hunsaker-Hawkins and Arthur Frank write, into form, into order. This in itself was a narrative I'd bought into and sold in my own writing. It was one that made sense in a broader culture that focused on talking therapies, talking to break down stigma, making, as the campaign says here, time to talk. While language had been my focus in attempting to reclaim my post-anorexic identity, I began to realise that words over body had accompanied my whole experience of anorexia. The incessant dictator of anorexia was formed from unrelenting worded attacks on myself and body. Words were false counters played in talking sessions, which saw the body as a detached symptomatic problem, one to be fixed, certainly, but not so much to be lived in. I began to explore the question articulated by cultural studies theorist Lisa Blackman. What does it mean to be and have a body? What did it mean for me to have and be a body? Was I even allowed to ask this question in relation to mental health, which was in the mind? I also wondered how such a personal and embodied question might bias my data. I'd started to work in the health sciences as a researcher. I took a job in an NHS cancer hospital. Medicine's evidence-based hierarchies pushed subjective, qualitative, non-generalizable bodies of knowledge to the bottom of its evidential pile. The psychological and the mental were siphoned off to different specialists. Healthcare's bodies were not knowing, they were to be known. My questions took me towards my PhD study, which I started in 2012 at Birkbeck, University of London. And those questions developed further from my now changed relationship with my own bodily being, largely developed through my yoga practice. This practice over many years changed from the management of the object body to embodied listening. It moved from the muscular, bounded, physiological body to the energetic, unbounded and relational body. And each practice revealed different experiences of my body. It was not a fixed and determinable thing, an outline in the mirror. It was a felt sense of me, which was constantly changing and becoming. Why had I not been able to access this before? I'd been previously told that I had a mental illness. This illness had painfully obvious physical expressions, but it was really largely a matter of my head. When my body returned to a normative weight, it was an acceptable body that did not really need further inquiry. It was okay if I was an absent body, as Drew Leader discusses in his book of that name. Because, as this quote says from Hans Plug, the body as heaviness, burden and weight is always one of malaise. Its non-interference in my life meant, therefore, that I was managing it okay. It was socially sanctioned for me to live life in my head. But this felt wrong. 
pregnancy and mothering told me differently. Yoga practice unfolded an entirely different story. Narrative, head-based life had become entrapping and restrictive. My thesis thus became an intervention into my own habits of thought, but also into the habits of thinking that I saw within healthcare where I worked. An intervention to return to healthcare something of the knowing body, which I felt was intricately bound up with distress or disorder, however they chose to phrase it. So the critical medical humanities, and the companion here shown is from 2016, provided an emerging field to which my thesis could speak. If you're aware of the field of medical humanities, you might know that its focus has been historically on narrative practice, on medical education, on questions of ethics. And it didn't perhaps seek to intervene, as William Viney says, in such ontological questions. So, as Woods and Whitehead argue in that companion, the critical medical humanities could aim to make much more of an intervention. It could aim to challenge evidence hierarchies. And it provided for me a framework for leveraging questions about what I saw as the dominant dualistic models of mental health. Finally, it also modelled how I might connect with social movements, feminism in my case, in identifying structures of domination, mind over matter, head over body, individual over environment. My approach was transdisciplinary, to reach across and beyond disciplines, trying to read and analyse in Karen Barad's term and from the useful vantage point of feminist new materialism, diffractively about the possibilities for non-dualist understandings of embodied distress. Some of the broad questions that drove my thesis were some rather large ones. What actually is mental health and illness? Why is mental health not physical health? How does the language of healthcare mobilise or reinforce dualism? And what does this do to conceptions of what it is to be a body or be embodied? Where could I find alternative body models with which to question and undo dualism? And some of this led me to a little bit of a historiographical trace around the separation of the mental and physical in health. Of course, it seems as if it's always been so, but obviously we told a much more complex picture. Descartes' systematic account of that mind-body distinction, separating out the, the physical body, which could be studied by science, and this immaterial mental spirit, as psychiatrist Kendall explains, found an ally in developments within medicine, such as the autopsy and the development of the microscope, where it was seen that patients with different forms of madness didn't show any visible lesions. And this led to the idea of the difference between the organic, what can be seen, and the functional, where there is no clear somatic pathology. And those sorts of Cartesian influences continued, I argue, to underpin language and understanding. The word psychogenic, non-physical, non-substance-like, those causes for mental disorders supported and underpinned influential theories and techniques of psychoanalysis and psychological models throughout the 20th century. More recently, however, this mind-body split has been somewhat undone, and certainly within the humanities and social sciences, many people will say, well, they don't believe in a mind-body split. There's the corporeal and material turns in critical theory. There's affect theory, phenomenology, which have seen the mind-body separation challenged and contested. 
And in the last decade, there's been a move within healthcare itself in the NHS in the UK. Um, towards stitching together physical and mental health care into something called integrated care. The National Clinical Director for Mental Health, Geraldine Strathdy, even said if we make as much progress in the last three years, if we made in the last three, in the next three years, as we've made in the last three, England can dump Descartes. However, if you look closely at the language, the research investigating comorbidities, connections, adverse effects, between mental and physical health, the terms mental and physical are taken for granted, but their implicit ontological meanings are overlooked. And as anthropologists Shepard Hughes and Margaret M. Locke wrote in their 1987 paper on the mindful body, even though most clinical practitioners know, perhaps even in a non-theoretical or intuitive way, that mind and body are inseparable, they are without, and I quote, the vocabulary and the concepts to address, let alone to probe, this mindful body. Rather than being close to dumping Descartes, it feels as though we've just put some stitches in the mind-brain-body problem without critiquing the terms that we are stitching. And I would argue that the mind is still largely understood as being to do with our heads and not the body, which is very loosely defined as that which is below the head or something to do with physical health. You can see this from an imagery point of view, with these disconnected images of heads from the charities SANE and Heads Together, and the latest two charities to emerge in the mental health field, Headcase and Heads Together, both use the word head in their very names. Furthermore, when you look at the actual wording from these campaigns, SANE talk about mental health, it's in my head, not my body. This quote from Headcase, you look after your body, so look after your mind. We have a mental health act, we don't have a physical one. And most people, when asked to point to their mind, will indicate their head. So although in critical terms, or in academic terms, and to some extent in this new model of integrated care, there is a realisation that dualism is flawed or outmoded, the language still supports our entire healthcare structures. And in my thesis, Drilling Down, I tried to, although somewhat artificially, um, divide and look at the different models which support our understandings of what exactly mental health is, which is not entirely clear. And although these are very much entangled, I tried to sort of separate them just to understand the different meanings that these create. So the first one on the left, foregrounds, what I would argue is a, a sort of model of immaterial thoughts. There was a quote um, there from an online mind-body um, health website where someone talks about anxiety being in the thoughts. Show me where thoughts are physically. They're illusions. They're not physical. Therefore, anxiety is not real. You create it in your mind. And in the second quote, this much more latent kind of messaging from the healthcare charity Mind, if you feel low or depressed, you may think, I can't face going into work today. I can't do it. Nothing will go right. As a result of these thoughts, and crucially, believing in them, you may call in sick. The second model is the widespread and popularised idea of it's all in the brain. So the brain is physical, and therefore the mind is physical, and the rest of the anatomical body is relevant, but mostly in terms of its relationship to brain rule. Certain leading organisations in the US now talk in terms of brain and behavioural, not mental, disorders. 
And the humanities and social sciences have got excited by this kind of neuroscientific term, engaging in all sorts of activities to unravel this kind of new meaning, but in some senses a little bit taken for granted understanding um, of this biological and neurological developments. Those with diagnosed disorders, as Javi Carell says, mimic this medical discourse and find solidity and disease structures for their previously malleable and invisible distress. The third model that I looked at is fueled by the connections demonstrating um, links between mental and physical health outcomes. And this acknowledges that the physical body, whatever that is, is affected by the mental health problem. For example, you might have physical symptoms from your mental health problems. You might have a racing heart, sweaty skin, um, tingling fingers if you have a panic attack. But there is nothing organically wrong, essentially, with your body because it's really all coming from the head. And the solutions often offered here to people are of body management, of thought management, of the cognitive, of the behavioural from the brain down. And these models are not just um, in some separable biomedical or psychiatric sphere. They are, as um, gender studies theorist Elizabeth A. Wilson says, complexly entangled with everyday life. And she refers to the communities and public spaces of support groups, talk shows, memoirs, patient online fora, where common mental disorders really live among us. And as Woods and Whitehead put it, these models very much translate into everyday spaces and understandings of what it means to have a mind and a body, what it is to be a person. And I, I share these models and images and examples um, about mental health to argue that for the most part, dualism in, is in some form still embedded, mobilised and supported, even by people who don't think that they're supporting it. And I feel that there are a number of problems with this. First, healthcare divides people into parts and has problems with systemic conditions that cross its self-created divides. Second, the language perpetuates this, however you turn it. So saying that these things are connected or interrelated still keeps them separate. And third, we know that mental illness is often experienced in palpably material and physical terms. If you look at the NHS Choices website detailing the list of symptoms for clinical depression, there is a huge long list of physical symptoms. The quotation on the left is from Australian writer Anna Spargo-Ryan, writing in The Guardian, who recounts her experiences of anxiety in the soles of her feet, the pain in her knees, the weakness in her hands, the tingling in her jaw. And the quote on the right from Health Talk Online, which gives us examples of patients' experience, shows the palpable, all-encompassing nature of depression, like a black pit, like running through treacle, like being locked in behind perspex or inside a thick balloon. The result is that there remains a gap in terms of how to interpret such feelings in the context of being told you have a mental disorder, with conclusions being, perhaps, that A, the feelings aren't somehow real, B, they're just part of a brain disorder, or see that they are in the body, but they must be undone and sorted out by the mind. And finally, 
borrowing from Simone Fulliger, physical cultures professor, who argues that all of this leaves the social as a ghostly presence, which hovers on the outline and often ends up getting swallowed inside models of brain plasticity. The dominance of neuroscientific brain-based theories of disorder, mentalist models of bodily dustbins, and psychological models of cognition and behavior from the head provide such strong narratives that it becomes almost impossible to get out of the quicksand of the mind and mental language and understanding. So there is one arguable model which brings us um, to potential spaces in which we can start to really dump Descartes. And embodied cognition, the concept of the embodied mind developed through cognitive science, situates the brain within a systems theory of biology. And so cognitive processes stretch beyond brain matter towards an organism, organism's sensory motor systems, as well as in relation to the environment, as this quote from Wilson and Golonka on the right articulates. And there are specific areas of systems-based medicine which are of particular interest to the idea that bodies are knowing and that mental health is not all in our heads. So psychoneuroimmunology tells us about the immune system and the influence on our sense of well-being. And this has been posited by some psychiatrists as a hierarchical shift in understanding. A newly released and already best-selling book by psychiatrist Edward Bulmore presents an account of depression based on inflammation, for example. Then there is the gut-brain axis, which posits a role for the stomach, the guts, as a second brain. And once again, where best-selling books such as Gut by Julia Enders have argued that, quote, an unhappy gut can be the cause of an unhappy mind. Finally, epigenetics, which theorizes the way in which outside stimulus detected by the body has the potential to cause epigenetic modifications. So the stuff that happens to you or to your parents and ancestors can physically change you. And I argue that this is where a critical humanities perspective can be useful to ask. Well, if the brain is not the only instrument of cognition and arguably the whole body is the mind, then what does this mean for our understanding of what mental health, health of the mind, actually is? What do all these scientific changes do to perhaps remapping mental health onto the physical being for healthcare? In an embodied model of mental health, it's perhaps understood that the self, as philosopher Kassam explained, is first and foremost an embodied self. Bodies are not projects to be attended to, listened to by the cognitive self above the neck. Sarah Ahmed refers to the familiarity and rep repetition of language and understanding with regards to racism and sexism. And Ahmed's argument resonates with the breadth and depth of critical material around the mind and body which although may be familiar and repeated and known to both academics and clinicians, often falters in practice and policy. I suggest that while there has been considerable theorization about bodies as texts, bodies from the outside, the way to rebody the self, if it has been severed or split, like for example in anorexia, may be first to come to the body 
to feel things, as Jung says, in the flesh. And this is where to get past that familiarity and repetition, I turn to disciplines where bodies are already considered knowledgeable. So in yoga, it's understood that there are multiple bodies. So for example, beneath the gross physical body lies the subtle body, consisting of energy channels or nadis. And it's not that yoga is dualism free, but for me, what it has been useful to do has provided a different map of movement, sensation, effective possibilities in and, of, in and of themselves. It's a way of feeling through the flesh, a way of attending to the knowing body without necessarily coming to narrative ends. I should acknowledge here that movement disciplines have problems in the area of mental health. The idea that movement, for example, is universally healing is problematic and can become yet another neoliberal body management strategy. Telling people to walk and get outside, for example, for it's, because it's good for their well-being, ignores people who live in run-down neighbourhoods who don't have money for cars or public transport and who are forced to walk everywhere. It doesn't engage with the profound difficulty of getting out of bed or out of the house in some cases. Yoga is expensive. It's appeared in recent decades of expansion across the world to privilege or favour certain bodies over others. And indeed, exercise your body kind of discourse ignores the way in which movement is not always universally possible on a physiological plane. But for me, embodiment is not simply about exercise or movement. The work of Matthew Sanford is useful here to show how embodied knowledge is greater than can be accounted for in simply feeling the body move. In his memoir, Waking, Sanford writes about his chest down paralysis following a car accident as a teenager. Doctors who saw his physical body as unfeeling and broken just simply advised him to ignore it and live in his head. Sanford, in this quotation here, makes a bold move from paralysis to anorexia, disobeying conventional illness models of the mental versus the physical. However, for Sanford, the connection is obvious, and the issue is one of a traumatic gap that forcibly balloons itself between ideas of mind and body, whatever the illness or disability. Finding connection may not be on that gross physical level, but what alternate models do, including yoga, and Sanford himself became a yoga teacher, is to access energetic states and breath work which focus on holism, not localism. For my work, yoga is not an object of inquiry to be gazed upon, but as Volker Scheid writes in his study of Chinese medicine, again in the Critical Medical Humanities, it is a resource for thinking critically through some of the key problems of our time. Mental health, that one in four problem, one of them. Yoga articulates for me how being is threaded through with mattering, as Karen Barad articulates. Being is not all about cognition above the neck. Perhaps at the start when I said that your body might be involved practically in participation, you felt something in your own skin, in your stomach. A bodily engagement with how that might be odd or awkward in the context of a lunchtime seminar. And you do not have to participate. 
But yoga is not a performance, it's a practice. It's not doing to the body, but being in the body. The notion of knowledge through practice draws me to the work of Japanese philosopher Yuasa, who asks, what might be the distinguishing feature of how knowledge is conceived in Eastern philosophies in very broad methodological terms? And what he argues is that although Western philosophers have taken up the question of how to overcome dualism, including phenomenologists, they have approached this in strictly conceptual, mental fashion, he says. In Eastern terms, knowledge is attained through practice, and so, as he cites, the medieval poet Shinkai, I think that's how you um, pronounce it, attainment is not his unless he knows for himself what is cold to be cold, what is hot to be hot, to shift into the knowing body. I often take my yoga students through the following, I am here, practice. I ask them, and you may join in, to place their hands upon their thighs, to place both of their feet on the floor, to perhaps lower their gaze or close their eyes, to inhale, and as they exhale, to press their hands into their thighs and repeat to themselves, I am here. So inhaling, and internally reciting, I am here. And then to move their hands onto their hip creases where the thigh meets the hip. And to place their thumbs around the top of the thigh and press down and inhale and exhale. I am here. And to move their hands onto the belly and place one hand on top of the other and to feel as they inhale, the belly expand and inflate into the hands, and exhaling, I am here. And to place their hands onto the sides of the rib cage, and to take a big breath in, feeling the ribs expand into the hands, and exhaling, pressing hands into rib cage, I am here. And then to take one hand to the back of the skull, where the neck meets the skull, and place one hand to the back of the sacrum. And to inhale and feel the spine lengthen and the head draw away. And to exhale, I am here. Earlier in the paper, I discussed how words split me from my body, and then how feelings needed to be attended to in the flesh. However, this does not mean a flight from language. Feminist philosopher Elizabeth Gross defines embodied subjectivity in its three-dimensionality as fully inclusive of language. Within yoga practice, there are a number of sounded mantras. Om. In this chanted word, 
The materiality of sound is inseparable from its meaning. It is not a separate worded or narrative representation of a bodily experience. It creates bodily experience. In practical terms, what this means is that different body parts are activated in the vibration of making these different sounds. The tongue makes different sounds affecting different parts of the body as it moves. My classes are led by and from the breath. I explain to students, for example, that the breath should envelop the movement. And again, you can join in if you want. So <clears throat> you inhale and then you start to move your arms. And you take the inhale all the way to the top. And when you're ready to exhale, you exhale and you move your arms down. And your breath finishes just after your movement. And you inhale. And you exhale. And you inhale. And you exhale. And you inhale. And you exhale. When the breath leads the movement, it stops it becoming detached and object-like. We move from the center, so instead of just throwing my arm up in the air, I imagine my arm coming up from my center, the energy rising up through my shoulder, through my arm, all the way to my fingertips. Connecting to the breath tells us about our state of being. Today, as I stand here, my breath is possibly shorter, more surface, perhaps agitated. And in sensing that, I also feel my stomach, my skin, my ribs. My breath is everywhere. It enables me to notice, to observe, proprioceptively, pro I can't say the word, proprioceptively, in a way that we often do not educate ourselves or our children to do. I return to my childhood body standing on a primary school field, asked to catch a ball in rounders, asked to find how to place an arm and to move from a center that I cannot perceive. Experiences, the body traumas and failures of childhood, the way our bodies are accepted or not, the fear and anxiety we may experience, the stress, the pleasure, the pain, all of that that we experience and that of our parents, like Sarah Ahmed explains, accumulate over time in the bag of your body. The social is hard to wrap in a cognitive brain-based model. It's all too difficult to integrate the outside, the physical experience of the world with something inside the head, between the ears. Elizabeth A. Wilson again frames this nature culture problem as one which she says bifurcates biochemicals and cultural institutions like oil and water. I suggest that when we understand mental health is not all in our heads, something is able to mix that was once divided. There is a pose in yoga, Vakrasna, tree pose. It pays attention to the roots to the foundations. It relies on the full use of your foot pressing into the floor. It is grounding, but it is also gathering energy. 
In this pose, I spread my toes, I find the corners and then I ascend. What if mental health is in my feet? In the way I feel grounded, feel safe, feel secure. The way in which I do or do not have somewhere to live, somewhere to plant my feet down, feel at home. If I feel like I cannot connect down because there is too much instability or I'm desperate and longing to escape, what if mental health is in my feet? What if mental health is in my legs? In the way when I've been scared and frightened, I felt like my legs have collapsed and turned to jelly and I felt weak and lacking power. In this asana, this yoga pose, warrior two, we stand in our strength. We find and connect the power and sensation in our legs. We stand and we listen and we learn when we need to let go, when we need to come out of the pose, when we need to soften it. What if my mental health is in my chest and my shoulders? The way that as I walk down the street, I'm judged or evaluated, discriminated against perhaps, objectified by men, forcing me to hunch and curl up. As Sarah Upnick writes, when the context is violence, for example, the body, it starts to expect it, and the body becomes differently inhabited, differently moved in anticipation. This is the process of becoming, of being in the world, and learning from that world how the body should be, defined and redefined in relation to the energy that it anticipates or experiences, in relation to the space that it is offered or refused. To open the chest in yoga practice can be very vulnerable, revelatory, terrifying. What if mental health is in my chest? What if mental health is in my stomach? when I feel perhaps indigestion after doubting myself, bloating when I'm stressed, like I've been punched in the stomach when I've been questioned. What if this is my mental health? Not dustbin-like symptoms or reactions. What if, as Elizabeth A. Wilson argues, the gut is an organ of the mind? What if my mental health is in my body fat my flesh, layers of it acting, like author Roxanne Gay explains, as a cage of her own making in reaction to her experience of being raped as a child. What if mental health is all physical, where the physical is not static and flat and internal, but lively, acting, changing, moving, relational? What if mental health is in my whole being body, it's not really mental at all, is it? Not in the ways in which mental is currently marketed, heads and brains and links to the rest of the body. When feminist body positivity campaigns say, you are not your body, what they should say is, you are not your body image. You are not your body in photos or in mirrors and in 2D space. You are your body. You are your body in three-dimensionality, including language, including surface, including the world which affects you and which you affect. While the National Clinical Director for Mental Health feels that England can dump Descartes, I argue 
that it's only when embodied distress is given context, directly addressed in research and practice, and a language underpins this structurally, that the meaning of mental health will have the depth and context it requires. Indeed, in a truly embodied model of mental health, people's lives and context, from the air quality they breathe, to the histories they embody, to the ways in which their bodies are acceptable or unacceptable compared to societal norms, to the social context for their lived lives, would all be seen as part of embodied mental health. The physical expression of disorder and distress is not merely a representation it's not a metaphorical rehashing of issues based in the immaterial mind or brain. And I leave you with this quote from mental health campaigner Mark Brown. Quote, mental health and mental illness are higher on the poly policy agenda than they have ever been yet to date. Yet to date, the area has not seen the levels of innovation and disruption present in approaches to other social challenges. This enabled me to think big to try and suggest paradigm shifts, and to argue for the value of the critical humanities work in pushing for social change, and in recovering for healthcare and education, something of the nature of embodiment and the complexity of an embodied mind. Thank you for listening. <laughs>